Blog Talk Radio. And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be, somewhere around this rotating globe. Welcome to the other side of midnight, that kind of magical time between dusk and dawn where, well, you know, the usual extraordinary things happen, except, as you probably heard me say a million times by now, this Weird magical time is no longer restricted to this time between dusk and dawn. It's happening 24-7. It's, it's arriving in waves and crescendos and piling on of extraordinary things on extraordinary things on extraordinary things. And it's affecting everything from climate to consciousness to oh, the verboten word politics. I mean, how does our Western consciousness reflect itself in the day-to-day activities of mice and men through the political lens? And once you put that lens in place, there's an awful lot of deepening morality plays going on right in plain view with people being forced to make choices, with people trying to talk with each other and for some reason just talking past each other. And it has nothing to do with intelligence. It's, I mean, it's it's really, really weird. And it's getting weirder. And if you think you've seen anything yet, well, you ain't been listening very carefully. Now, One of the things that's going to happen in the next 48 hours is that a very rare celestial event, the um, once every two or three year transit of the uh, planet Mercury across the surface of the sun on the 11th, on Monday, the 11th, is going to take place. The last one was several years ago. I was able to actually measure it with the Accutron. this year, uh, for reasons that are kind of just too boring, I'm not able to measure this one. But it's um, it, based on our previous measurements, uh, both of the Venus transits and the Mercury transits. And, of course, lunar eclipses, which are also transits of something big, something close to Earth. I can tell you categorically that the physics, when you get that alignment of sun, planet, or sun and bigger planet, the physics goes nuts. It's amplified. And it's amplified different places at different intensities at different times during the five or so hours uh, of the eclipse. And again, I base this on actual physical accutron inertial repeating measurements. I was able to do both at Coral Castle during eclipses and transits, as well as the top of the Sandias, uh, 2,000 miles to the west and uh, half a mile plus in the sky, atop a huge slab of 70 million-year-old Cretaceous amplifying limestone. Anyway, so that's going to happen on Sunday. Uh, I'm sorry, Monday. Uh, New Mexico time. If you go to the other side of midnight.com, that's our website. Click on tonight's banner for um, Ken Wheeler, and that will take you to the guest page. Uh, scroll down a bit, you'll see fast links to items. Click on mine, that takes you to my first item. The science of the 2019 Mercury Transit 
how astronomers will study the rare celestial event. And there's some really, really, really good science in there, which when you overlay it with the hyperdimensional physics that I was just describing, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be in the fan in and around, you know, the nation's capital over the next month or two. And it's not accidental. It's part of this physics. Another part of the physics, which we're going to spend extensive time uh, talking about tonight with my guest, is this extraordinarily intriguing phenomenon that, as I said in the promo that I uh, worked up for tonight's blog talk and Facebook uh, posts, I mean, what kid has not played around with magnets? You know, one or more magnets and tested the repulsion and the attraction and the invisibility and you know, the bigger the magnets, the more powerful, and the, the stranger the phenomenon. And you could, you know, put things on paper and then use the magnet to concentrate the field so you could see these things called field lines. I mean, every, every kid, at least every kid I knew growing up, uh, at one point or the other, you know, out of stuff you find in kitchens back then, you know, did magnetic field with stuff because it was so... It was so physically palpable of the line between the visible and the invisible, that line in science as well as in metaphysics. Anyway, my guest tonight, Ken Wheeler, during high school took college courses. His teachers and professors referred to him as an outer stellar anomaly with a magical gift for translating concepts, mathematics, and ancient languages. He surprised everyone when he translated Pali, an ancient Indian language older than Sanskrit, along with Romanic Sanskrit and ancient Greek. Ken is extremely prolific with over 6,000 videos, translating for books he writes along with photography. Currently, he's working on three books, including the fourth edition of one of his books, and he's just finished just writing the second edition of the translation of the uh, Dhammas Pali Al-Ali, an ancient Pali text. Pali has been a dead language for over 2,000 years, as you can tell from my pronunciation. He admits, that is Ken, admits that he's had dreams of ancient languages, oh, that we all could. <clears throat> Ken was greatly influenced by a very famous metaphysician who was honored on an Indian stamp, Dr. Ananda Kantish Kumaswarmi. Dr. A.K. Kumaswarmi, his son, Rama P. Kumaswarmi, a cardiac surgeon, gave Ken the rights to all of his father's books as long as he did not change or charge for them. Ken lived in Russia for a few years during Russian translations for the U.S. government. In addition, Ken has the largest website on the camera recommendations. Fujifilm loves him. So without further ado, Mr. Wheeler, welcome to the other side. Hello, sir. How are you doing this evening? Doing really, really well. You know, I'm fascinated by these measurable physics now that we can do with things like alignments and transits and squares and uh, tangents and whatever. So to me, it's um, the, the coincidence of the things that are going on in the political realm and the coincidence of some really bizarre things going on in the astronomical realm is not in fact a coincidence after all, but a real measurable physics. This is true. Everything uh, so far as human interactions is certainly mirrored. So in fields we are either uh, repulsed by something or attracted by something or stopped. So the sort of conscious uh, psychophysical reactions that humans have seem to mimic uh, everything I see in field theory almost perfectly. Seems like everything is mimicked uh, as above, so below, as the saying goes. So, always interested in the irreducible simplicity of everything. And if you can get to the root of everything, then everything else kind of follows. You don't have to know everything, but you have to know the foundation. By knowing the foundation, you should be able to understand all the minutiae that's underneath it, even if it's extremely complicated. Let me ask you this we're going to talk about some very complex concepts tonight. Uh -huh. Things that I know people are not familiar with because I'm not familiar with a lot of them, and I, you know, try to keep up on a lot of stuff. 
So we're going to have to take baby steps, please, for my benefit, before we, you know, gallop off into the sunset. Surely. How did, I mean, your background is very eclectic. You know, ancient languages resurrecting from the dead, languages that should have died thousands of years ago. Uh, 6,000 produced videos. Hell, man, that's that's superhuman right there. <sighs> and... Uh, so, but how did you wind up becoming a world-class expert on perhaps the most mysterious aspect of what a kid can do in a lab kind of physics, namely magnetic fields? I was fundamentally always interested in fields. So I was really always interested in the, the fundamental foundation of everything. Um, I knew that... Uh, a lot of the things that I was taught in school and certainly so in college, University of Kentucky and countless other places was nonsensical. And I was always extremely interested, not in history for the sake of history, but looking in epochs of human history and specifically uh, what the ancient Greeks and Egyptians and Indians had to say about things. And Greeks were extremely interested in fields or the ancient Greek term kora and what this was. Of course, no branch of modern science has ever defined a field in itself. I was just going to break in and say, can you please define a field? Yes, in very simplex would be an ether perturbation. I mean, if we talk about in simplest analogy, um, like a child would think that ice, water, and steam are three different things, but of course we as adults know that that's silly, you know, with our greater intelligence, or rather should be wisdom, as opposed to empirical knowledge. You know, that these are different temperature and pressure modalities, obviously, of water. And, of course, all these fields are nothing other than different ether modalities of one and the same thing. You actually have field modalities that are either circular or transverse or longitudinal pulse perturbations like light. Um, But specifically regarding science, an interesting thing that I've not read anywhere but that I noticed is that every epoch of scientific understanding, whether that be 50 years in span or 30 years, sometimes they're greater, sometimes they're longer. They've always thought they had a firm bead on how uh, natura naturans or mother nature, if you will, worked. And whether that be 30 or 50 or 100 years later, they were always proven nearly 100% wrong. And as we currently sit, this is certainly no different than any other point in history. We're certain we've got a firm bead on everything, and we absolutely do not, of course. See, the question I always have when I have these conversations is because of the concepts that we're going to talk about and that you lay out quite plainly and that are coming at us from a variety of different researchers, real, you know, what I call citizen scientists. It's so axiomatically true that there is, quote, an ether or a torsion field or whatever name you want to give it, and it makes stuff happen. It makes matter happen. It makes energy transitions happen. It makes consciousness happen. It's, it makes the 3D universe possible. And yet there's this incredible divergence between where the data is and where mainstream academic, quote, reality, close quote, is. And never the twain shall meet. How, my, my key question, how is that incredible totally counterintuitive, non-fact-based reality maintained decade after decade after decade. Well, we're in a currently epoch of atomism. Um, ether, um, excuse me, Nikola Tesla specifically said that the ether must exist. Nikola Tesla, of course, uh, spoke great ill against Einstein, and we called him a fuzzy-haired crackpot and countless <laughs> other things, specifically that uh, Einstein reified space as having properties. Ultimately, analogously, space is certainly no different than a shadow. We all grew up with Star Trek and Star Wars, bending space-time, curvature of space-time, but Nikola Tesla said the curvature of space is absolutely impossible. It has attributes, just like a shadow has attributes. If you stand in a shadow, you're going to get cold. Therefore, a shadow must be something, because if you stand in a shadow, it's going to affect you. But a shadow is not a thing itself. This is uh, called principle reification, and it's a fallacy. The Greeks talked about this at uh, great length, or at least Plotinus did. Shadow is, of course, merely an absence of light. I mean, ultimately, speaking about fields, a shadow is not a thing. But Ultimately, uh, getting back to what I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, there's only two foundations of reality that can be built. No one throughout any point in history has ever postulated anything other than two foundations of reality or natura naturans or mother nature. Foundation number one is atomism. 
I, uh, we're currently living in an epoch of atomism, as I call it, the cult of bumping particles. In other words, Mother Nature is a crazy chick with a giant bag of magic particles, and they bump and interact, and that's the only way anything happens. The other foundation of the house, if you will, the concrete foundation, is the ether. And no one throughout any point in history has ever postulated any foundation other than that. And uh, I'll stick with Nikola Tesla. Faraday, James Clerk Maxwell, Oliver Heaviside, and Charles Proteus Steinmetz. I mean, these are the gods and geniuses of electrical and field theory. These are the guys that have countless thousands of patents, you know, as opposed to people like Einstein and what I like to refer to, you know, forgive me by calling it the cult of quantum. It, quantum is, of course, atomism, but that's where we live in currently. So this is nice. Uh, well, see, social- again, this is another example of where the real scientific reproducible reality which is that Michelson and Morley really did detect an ether and Dayton Miller following them and a couple of other guys overwhelmingly confirmed you know direction flow speed entrainment with the rotating earth all of that good stuff and then you got this divergent fiction that relativity is king. Uh, there is no ether. Everything has to have happening simultaneously. The speed of light is the same in all directions. It's measurably not. So you've got this bifurcated reality. And again, how do they manage decade after decade to pull this off? Well, it's starting to collapse. I actually made a video just four days ago about a big article that was posted. I'm sorry, I don't have the link in front of me, of course, but it's a scientific article talking about the ether making a resurgence. However, um, the most evil word, if you will, not really evil in uh, quantum is to even mention the ether. But they've actually uh, supplanted ether these past many decades by calling it several different things. And, of course, it doesn't matter what you call it. A rose by any other name is still a rose and smells the same. They've actually called it quantum foam. They've called it dark energy. They've called it zero-point energy. It doesn't matter what you call it. It's the ether. Specifically, and this is by their own admission from their own mouths, the only reason why they've called it dark energy is, and this is literally their own words, they call it dark because they don't know what it is. These are their words, not mine. Mm-hmm. And they call it energy because of the interactions and you know the resultant consequence of, wow, something happened here. We don't know what this is. So. And they've said that uh, general consensus, I think that they've agreed to something like 78% of the uh, universe by their own admission is quote-unquote dark energy, but they have no idea what it is, and that's why they call it dark energy. And it's okay not to know. The important thing, and I've said this in countless videos, is that if you think you know the answer to something, you never go looking for the answer to that thing you think you know the answer to. And in their academic hubris, they are certain what they know because that's what they were taught by the PhD in front of this is This is the way it is. And uh, every epoch of science is exactly the same, and they're always disproven X number of years or decades later. Hmm. However, I think the frequency of these revolutions or these sub-revolutions is rapidly decreasing. That we're, we're getting many more per unit time than there used to be, and it's accelerating. I don't know if that's accelerating off a cliff or an accelerating to better understanding. We, I don't know where that's going to go. What, what's your, what's your um, conclusion on that one? Well, I see some real breakthrough stuff on the horizon, if not you know, right around us, and an, a willingness to think outside the box. This whole climate discussion is part of a larger frame for what kind of environment do we want? And, and how can we get there? I mean, the 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 incredible, you know, almost hypnotic um, uh, hypocrisy of stolen fossil fuels are going to kill us when we know how to tap in to the torsion field slash magnetic domain uh, and produce limitless non-polluting energy. Um, and, you know, like sliding frictionlessly across an equipotential surface. I mean, that's the crime of the millennium because those decisions are having mega, mega consequences because they're in the wrong cycle of the background physics, you know, planetary cyclic phenomenon at the, on, at the underpinnings of everything. 
Hopefully we'll break over top of that hill without falling off of a cliff, but I can't prognosticate on that. So that's a very good question. I wish I had an answer for that one. Well, some of it has to do with the – well, that's part of a further discussion down the line, but there is not a – there's not an immiscibility between the fields and consciousness affecting the fields. It's kind of like, um, you know, that, that great line out of Star Wars. Uh, which one? I've seen all the Star Wars. Uh, I don't know what the green light was well, in reference. Well, Yoda, you know, you don't. Oh, oh, this little, oh, oh, you're talking about uh, the Force. Yeah, there is about. no such thing as try. You just do it. Correct. Subconscious uh, action, but not action yep. in the empirical yep. sense. But. So let's go back to when you got it. We got a few minutes to the bottom of the hour. When you, yeah. as a as a kid, got intrigued with this feel stuff and quickly discovered that there was more to this than has been written about. Yeah, um, yeah I started at an early age um, looking at um, the works of Pythagoras. Of course, I didn't know ancient Greek at that point in time. Still studying Russian and uh, other languages like French and German, but really what I consider to be like 95% of the really important philosophical stuff is either in ancient Pali or Sanskrit or specifically ancient Greek. And um, they talked about fields endlessly, and I I think I've got basically every major book ever written on the topic of magnetism. And if you ever want to confound a scientist or a Ph.D. physicist, just ask them to define what a field is in itself, by itself. And, of course, their eyes will bug out, and, you know, they'll stutter. And it's okay not to know the answers to things. I, I don't believe in, uh, you know, what millennials are very uh, famous for is putting someone on the spot, you know, I gotcha. I, I'm not interested in that, but uh, it's important to, uh, you know, confess whether it be me or be, me be or whether it be me or somebody else that I don't know, and that's a great starting place. But when you, you know, you post this, uh, you know, hubristic, well, I have HD, I know what a field. They can never tell you what a field is. They've never defined a field. I've offered people money. I said, go find the definition of a field, not the four Maxwellian field equations, but what is a field. And, he, and like a Feynman, um, Richard Feynman, who's one of the founders of uh, quantum, even he himself said that none of us have ever defined the term energy. And of course they have not. And uh, you have to start with a position that you don't know rather than this sort of academic hubris that, well, I have a PhD and, you know, my word is God. Don't you dare question me. You know, that uh, doesn't get any of us anywhere. But uh, specifically on uh, the ether or on relativity, and I'll quote Nikola Tesla, who said, all literature on this subject, relativity and curved space time is futile and destined to oblivion, unquote. Uh, Mm-hmm. Greatest even even more intelligent than Nikola Tesla, however, nowhere near as many patents, is uh, James Clerk Maxwell, who said this medium of propagation, the ether, must exist. The medium must be a prominent thought in our investigations. This is his book on treaties on electricity and magnetism. These are the gods of field theory and electricity, for which you know we have everything today. You know, and they're not like primitive minds or anything. It's like, well, you know, that's old stuff. We know better now. It's like, that's that's not the case. It's completely not the case. And once again, we get to this irreducible foundation of either atomism or the ether, and there is no other foundation upon which to build the house of, you know, a correct picture of cosmic mechanics or Mother Nature. But the ether itself, if you de- define it down to its ultimate particulate existence, has got to be granular as opposed to being seamless. There's got to be quantum steps between the ultimate particles of the ether. Well, we can't particleize it because it's the foundation of particles. We actually have to talk about it in the sense of non-Cartesian um, substrate, literally uh, you know, the principle by which everything else is manifest. And of course, this is a term, uh, excuse me, a concept in metaphysics that's occurred by the Greeks and the Indians, so we can't confuse nothing with no thing. Nothing, of course, i.e. nihil ex nihil, though, from nothing comes nothing. We're not talking about nothing, but rather this non-Cartesian counterspace, this subspace, and to use a, a current science fiction reference, I've heard, everybody's heard subspace a thousand times. Of the science fiction, but uh, it doesn't matter what we call it, but we have the correct concept or idea in our heads. But uh, Nikola Tesla called it, um, he didn't particleize it, but he used a particle type of reference. He called it 
Uh, I think, I believe from Nicholas Tesla's exact quote is something like a, a very finest substance. I'm sorry, I might be misquoting him on that. I can't remember the exact quote from Tesla. Hmm. I'm thinking, I mean, this is going to get a radical left-hand door open, but um, if you followed any of the literature on the so-called Pleiadians, the Billy Meyer contact, and any of the uh, reportage of the notes, the the communications from these ostensible ETs to Billy Meyer, the Swiss farmer. There, I can't comment. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. I apologize. Well, there are sections of those notes where you get this kind of physics, but communicated through an itinerant source from you know dimensions or or you know source material itself which is well nigh unbelievable except it cross correlates Walter Russell and Edgar Casey fell along those lines I don't know if you're familiar with a lot of the works of Walter Russell I digitized mm-hmm. I digitized all his uh, primary works although Walter Russell himself never defined a field, and uh, he was a very simple man, and uh, I was actually threatened uh, over the past couple of years by someone took some pictures of some rare drawings of his, very high resolution, I have 54 of them, and I was just giving them out freely, like these are the drawings of Walter Russell, and um, his society had uh, threatened me, you know, how dare you give those out, you know, they're not under copyright, they're not sold in a book form, but, uh, you know, very, uh, very, very simple man, he's a brilliant sculptor, um, but uh, his drawings are absolutely fascinating. But, you know, as uh, Kumaraswamy said, nothing is known except for the modality of the knower. I mean, uh, uh, Walter Russell, as well as Kumaraswamy, myself, and everybody throughout history, is only expressing things through the particular subjectivity that we understand. Like, you know, if we had intelligent fish, they would make, you know, water analogies and all sorts of stuff that we couldn't relate to. But everybody's mind has a certain linguistic structure, and they try to relate what they understand or know or want to express to other people through their own particular subjective uh, conscious substructure. So, you know, well, Walter Russell might use different words. I try to, you know, understand what he's saying, or that be Edgar Casey or even Nikola Tesla. Um, we all have our own little quirky ways of trying to define what it is that we understand, which is, of course, you know, not linguistic. It immediately pops into our head. We have an understanding, and we have to try to translate it and write it down or say it to people. And this, of course, creates confusion and anger and conflict and everything else. And it's probably the reason why humanity is doomed, at least partially so, but I digress. <laughs> well, that's an interesting digression. Something of an optimist. What was it Sulu said to a Chekhov during one of the uh, original Star Treks? He sure speaks gloomy. <laughs> I've I've seen every Star Trek episode a lot. I, I grew up with it, and just a couple hours ago I was watching Star Trek Enterprise. Gene was a genius. Really? You know, I've been watching this Enterprise series consecutively, like binge-watching in between a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. And I can't understand why it didn't click. It's damn good. It is. And they had those. Really, really. Do you hear that, guys? Enterprise was damn good. So what happened? Was Was it too good? Did it fill in too many gaps for people that could read between the lines? Generally, it has to boil down to somebody in accounting with a calculator working the numbers. It has nothing to do with whether something's good or not. And, you know, they said, hey, this isn't making enough money, or maybe we should do this instead of that. And that's, uh, I guess, those are the people that ruin good movies and good uh, TV shows. I'm only guessing on that, but I've heard many actors express that fact. Well, I wonder how many um, dollars they saved. How many. I don't remember offhand how many seasons it went, but it's really building very nicely, and it's got all that glue. You know, knowing Gene, knowing uh, uh, what he was trying to do way back in the dark ages of television. I mean, Enterprise, his his mentorees, they really pulled it off. Anyway, my guest this morning is Ken Wheeler. We're talking about fields, and I'm not talking about uh, JC. And um, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. 
we shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership cost $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. everyone. On this Saturday night, the 9th of November, where is the year going? Tomorrow night, by the way, I want to give a kind of a heads up on the promo. Tomorrow night, we're deliberately playing, we're replaying an extraordinary show that one year ago, tomorrow night, I had on the other side of midnight with our resident historian, Dr. Richard Spence. And what we were trying to do is to take apart a hundred years before the historical vicissitudes, the randomness of bizarre anomalies just struck out of nowhere that led to the inexorable horrors of World War I. And of course the question we're posing by running the show again, given what's going on in the Middle East and who's in the White House and who's in Russia and who's not. Could this cacophony of things we do not want happen again? Okay, again, sorry to wander a bit off the reservation, but I keep thinking that if even some of the most basic discoveries, uh, the, the, you know, the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about over the next couple, three hours, if it had was actually brought to market where people could free themselves from, you know, the inevitability of centralized power, which is, you know, got a chokehold on a civilization the world would be a stunningly different and I would argue stunningly better place. Uh, you agree or disagree? I do agree, but I also have to admit my shortcomings in saying that I can't extremely intelligently comment on that fact. Uh, I don't know which parameter on many different fronts, obviously so, but uh, that uh, I can say that I can speak you know, to that subject you know, with any uh, great power um, that's, uh, you know, I'm sure or that I've done an enormous amount of study on that fact. Specifically on the energy front, the answer would be yes. I actually thought for many, many years that free energy was not possible. Of course, energy is everywhere. And so far as uh, free or manifesting it out of the ether, I thought impossible and actually gave it a lot of consideration. Now I'm 100% certain that it absolutely is possible. Um, but I forever resisted that in my head, but I always have to keep an open mind, and I'm certain that it is possible. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the club. You know, a lot of the postulations for free energy, though, were the dead ends, and, uh, you know, that obscures free energy itself in its most, you know, root form. So that was always a dark cloud hovering over top of the, the real gem, if you will. See, part um, of the problem, I think, has been we're kind of stuck in nomenclature. You know, the concept of free 
in our 3D reality, you know, dog-eat-dog, entropy, hot to cold, that kind of thing, the inexorability of time, death and taxes, you name it, leads us to become incredibly suspicious of the idea that anything is for free. So I remember dinner some years ago, Robin and I attended in Amsterdam where we were able to convince the uh, energy project people to change the name of their proposed conference series and to call it Breakthrough Energy. Because if it's accepted, it's a breakthrough both on a technological and political and economic front, and it will change society for the better. It will. However, there will be a huge upheaval, and the people that are certainly keeping that secret uh, know that there would be a uh, massive global earthquake, not a literal earthquake, but a massive global earthquake on several different fronts uh, were that to release. But Well, why, why is that axiomatic? I mean, if you have a potential resource with infinite potential, the way you manage its filtration into society is you do like with any legislation, you phase it in over time. You no, I agree with you. I'm not against it at all. I'm, I'm speaking. You know, words, it's, a, it's, it's my grandmother would say, you know, you can do anything, you know, if you have the, you know, the cornucopia of, of riches. Here we only have to figure out how to manage in a human system that has fail-safes, a system of controlling the infinite. That's one of the reasons I think philosophically this has been so hard to bring to market in a 3D world, 3D reality, because it's a reality that transcends our 3D reality, and it's set up some doozies of some anomalies in getting the politics in line with consciousness. And we're all wandering around like zombies trying to pay the bills and working hard, so uh, laboring hard so we can buy labor-saving devices. It's an endless rat race, and everything is so interconnected that uh, certainly the entities that control this, not speaking to anyone specifically, are certainly worried about uh, upsetting the card, if you will. I mean, that has to be the conclusion. That's truly speculative on my part, obviously. So but we have to ask ourselves, what is energy? I mean, a, uh, a generator, take the Hoover Dam, for example, and I've visited it more than a few times. Whether we're talking about a two-phase or three-phase generator, what is energy itself? I mean, nothing is literally being emitted from the generator. You know, there is no transference of the falling water or uh, the solar panel or uh, – or the winds, there's no transference between the winds and the AC generator or the water and the, the generator. So what is energy? And it's an ether perturbation, of course. I mean, that's all a, a power generator is. And then we have to ask ourselves a question, do we actually have to have some sort of movement, be it solar or wind or nuclear or uh, water or otherwise, to actually generate energy? And I gave that years of consideration, and it absolutely does not. I mean, ether torsion itself uh, could certainly be a very simplex device in which uh, energy is generated with no necessitative input, be it nuclear, wind, or water, or uh, otherwise. We're talking about an ether torsion, uh, wheelworks construction. I mean, Nikola Tesla's uh, great uh, idea of the AC generator was watching the phases of the moon and uh, how it was uh, chasing around the Earth, and he immediately drew in the sand, supposedly, uh, uh, the AC generator, his, uh, his wonderful invention. And, uh, but I mean, power is not emitted literally from an AC generator. We're talking about an ether perturbation device that necessitates an input. So is energy possible without that input? And the answer is logically and undeniably yes. But a lot of the dead ends that I was referring to, I mean, a giant cloud or many countless clouds actually hung over top of uh, free energy. I just had to wipe those away and consider it on its bare face as you know, several other people have done, like Dollard and otherwise. Well, see, the only way you can logically consider the idea of free energy is if you consider there's other levels of reality than the three dimensions that we experience. Oh, undeniably so. So what you're doing with tapping into so-called free energy is opening a plenum, a gateway, a doorway between 
these dimensions and the energy and the information flow into our 3D reality. Problem of perpetual motion solved. Yeah, in other words, in a simplex analogy, can we actually stick a doorstop on the door, if you will, between these dimensions and allow energy to flow, as opposed to what humanity is currently doing via all uh, forms of energy generation, where in which we have one or several different types of uh, individuals perpetually exerting energy via their hands, analogously, via their hands to keep the door propped open. In other words, the door will only stay open when someone is expending calories, if you will, to keep that door open. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, can we actually, you know, do we have a device, you know, analogously where we could stick a, a block in the door and where nothing has to be exerted to allow the passage of that energy from there to here? Mm-hmm. And? And that necessitatively must exist. Well, the question I was asking was, have you found it? No, God, no, I would never presume to make any such claim as that. I've given it a great deal of thought, but no, I mean, I would, uh, I would have either been one killed off already by some entity, or you know, um, moved on to some other, I don't know what. Well, I would never be able to patent something like that. I, I assume I would be squirreled away or either killed. That doesn't, that doesn't sound like a conspiracy. That would certainly be reality if someone actually, a private individual, came up with that and they, they squeaked about it. I assume that they would uh, vanish, and that's certainly undeniable. I mean, that poses far too great of a risk uh, to that person or persons. Well, I mean, there are ways to manage that. You know, like what we've done is we've set up triggers so that in the event that something unforeseen were to happen to me, a whole bunch of things would get emailed automatically to a whole bunch of people. And over the years, I know a lot of people. You know, as Art and I discussed many years ago, the ultimate insurance policy in this business is notoriety, being visible, being very visible, being really blatantly, ostentatiously visible. Well, the Utah Data Center tried to eliminate that so everybody is ultimately visible. Whether you think you're invisible or not, you're extremely visible. <laughs> well, yeah. We got, we got one... a tracking device you know, that we perpetually – everybody now is addicted to their cell phones. It tracks everything you do, where you go, what you say. Your phone's always listening to you. And that's uh, that's not uh, not fringe at all. That's absolute uh, reality. Even Snowden, I think, made a two-hour video. He used to work for the NSA about the the ways you think your cell phone tracks you. He made like a two-hour-long video, and he well, worked for the who NSA. Who was it? Who was yeah. it? Who a couple of three years ago, uh, Kellyanne Conway, who was, you know, attacked viciously for being some kind of a you know blonde ninny for saying that her refrigerator was eavesdropping on her? Yeah, I don't know if you saw the breaking news today, but it was uh, it was been going on now for, I believe, eight years. There's an entity somewhere up in the Northeast. They were selling uh, surveillance security monitoring cameras that actually had Chinese firmware installed that were networked. And it's, it broke as national news, and uh, the CIA and the FBI crashed in on them. They were putting USA-made stickers on the software for the installation of these, and then they were network security system. They were not closed-circuit security, and these had been sold for the past many, many years to uh, um, military installations, top-secret facilities, uh, including battleships. Uh, absolutely unbelievable. They were literally Chinese uh, recording, uh, uh, security recording devices and the software for them. And no, wait, uh, the, this is not to be confused with the so-called kamikaze chips? No, this actually broke today. It was on uh, all three major uh, news networks, unbelievably, which almost never happens. But, uh, oh, that's yeah, they, intriguing, because uh, some years ago, one of my sources tipped, tipped me off. And I tried to go on network uh, radio and talk about it, and they sat on the story. They would not let me discuss it on network radio. Outright censorship. Strange. And it had to do with Chinese salting the market uh, with chips, which basically had kamikaze drop-dead dates built into their firmware. So they'd run... You know, the heart of a system, let's say an electro-optical system for targeting missiles on a battlefield, and they run till their drop-dead date, and then they suddenly stop working. And 
I was going to talk about the source of the story, the validations with the DOD, and um, Nuri would not have it. He, he threw a small uh, uh, cast to it. It's not surprising. Not meaning him, but that would that that would happen. Yep. Yep. Anyway, um, so why don't we kind of swing into the meat of the matter? Because we've been discussing things that to people sound abstract, like energy from a higher dimension. Let's talk about machines, magnetic machines that you have known and loved, which actually can do this. I don't purport to have any machines that actually release free energy. I've created a few very interesting devices. If a patent wasn't so extremely expensive, I'd have several patents right now. I have a millionaire buddy that I've known now for 30-some years that has currently four patents, and he's a multimillionaire, and he complains about getting patents, and I don't have those financial resources at all. My ultimate interest is in fundamentally understanding what magnetism is. We can actually create a lot of these devices, and I have created several extremely interesting things that are, you know, have real-world applications, such as gold collection, you know, a la baby powder gold and the diamagnetic natures of gold, that it would actually drop out of the laminar flow of water for gold sluicing, and I've had a lot of people that I've actually worked with, including in Canada, to uh, help them uh, install magnetic arrays. So so this is a magnetic technology that would be dropped in the water, in the open water or in a sluice situation, and it would would interact with the gold in the water and concentrate it. It's actually attached to a rack, and uh, since people don't understand what magnetism is or that each side of a pole or, if you will, a face of magnet – has actually uh, different properties, like the central port of a magnet actually is a centripetal convergence, and then the outer edge is the only true magnetism, and that actually interacts with the uh, the gold and the and the diamagnetic nature of gold. A lot of uh, the gold actually co- uh, collected, both in Colorado and Alaska and countless other places, including Canada, washes out because it's baby powder gold. That's actually what they call it. In other words, the mass is such that it actually flows along with the water, so you end up shooting the water out the end of your sluice. But if you actually decelerate it out of the laminar flow of the water, then it will actually collect in the uh, the, uh, the whiffles that they call it, or the moss, depending on what sort of sluicing system, so you're able to collect it. So by installing these uh, simple uh, magnetic arrays in the, uh, the sluicing, uh, they're able to collect uh, a lot more gold. I'm also interested, and I've done countless videos on seed experimentation, uh, a true suppressed work by Rawls and Davis. Uh, they created uh, the Magnetic Blueprint of Life and another work that the FDA actually did suppress. However, there are a few hundred copies out there. It took me about 10 years to find a copy that I could scan in. There's the magnetic effects of uh, indifferent polarity, and this is due to the phase shift of the magnetism itself. Between the North Pole and the South Pole, they did countless experiments on worms, chickens, uh, seeds. I mean, you could make tomatoes uh, grow more acidic or uh, far less acidic. They would actually uh, cause chickens, due to embryo exposure, to be either uh, very healthy and grow up very aggressive, or to come out as weaklings. And they actually discovered this by accident by uh, having a powerful magnetic field next to a cup of worms and dirt inside of a styrofoam cup. And then they they went on and they actually had a, a patent as far as uh, seed exposure. I've had people out in Colorado that are growing stuff. And other people have done this experimentation, and I've made at least 30 or 40 videos showing that you get radically different uh, seed growth. I actually uh, experiment with uh, different types of seeds. They have radically different outcomes. They taste different. They grow radically different. Uh, You have different uh, robustness as far as the percentage of seeds that die. And uh, it's absolutely fascinating. And uh, But no one's talking about this anywhere on the Internet or on YouTube. I mean, you remember the old Jack and the Beanstalk thing about magic seeds, quote-unquote? We all had that mm-hmm. child story. Well, I literally thought about going into business with my buddy and about – we thought, however, concluded that we might be sued. Someone said – we came to the conclusion that you know some crazy person might say, well – you know, I uh, ate these seeds and I developed a tumor or something, and this obviously is because of your magnetically exposed seeds. And we thought about the liability on that and but changed our mind. But I've made many videos and I've told people to do the experiment themselves, and many, many people have. And, you know, I didn't believe you, but I saw your videos and you're not selling anything. And I did the experiment, and you're right. It's absolutely unbelievable. Radically different results due to seed exposure. 
Mm. Or you even get a more radical exposure if you actually expose the seeds as they're germinating. Um, it only takes just a few minutes of exposure uh, of the seeds. It sounds extremely strange, but it's actually extremely logical, and the results are undeniable. So track through from the beginning. This is very important because it kind of marries to, together with things that Robin and I were taught in uh, Central America when we were doing measurements on the pyramids, and I was kibitzing back and forth with this Mayan priest, and I was showing him on the screen the measured effects of the Akatron of the energies being amplified by the pyramid. And he was, you know, metaphorically jumping up and down. He says, I never thought I'd see on a screen what my grandmother told me is going on with these things. And we're sitting on the top of this pyramid, looking at my laptop and uh, measuring the frequency fluctuations of the uh, inertia of the tuning fork. I can't comment intelligently on that, but I can as far as uh, real um, – when people talk about pyramid power, I'm not dismissing that one way or the other, but I have said in many countless videos, and I have some very expensive uh, pyramid magnets. And there's a buddy of mine who used to be the largest seller. His name is George Mizell. He's located in Alabama. He calls himself Super Magnet Man. He uh, actually traveled to China to have some special uh, pyramidal magnets made. And this is a demonstrable fact. It is not, you know, hearsay one way or the other. And this is visible underneath uh, the ferrule cell, which is a holographic uh, magnetic viewing device. Which, of course, you have several pictures in front of you. That uh, that uh, you know, like a fireman's nozzle is tapered like a pyramid. And of course, you get extremely high pressure. I'm trying to make a simplex analogy. For mm -hmm. uh, you know, a nozzle for your garden hose. Are, are we talking like a dunce cap type, type geometry? Exactly, and these uh, pyramidal magnets—they have extremely high. You can actually whip out a. a uh, so this a, is not a flat, squat pyramid shape. This is a tall, narrow, what we're terming now the Russian pyramidal shape. Actually, the base on these, uh, most of them, is the base is a ratio of one to five. They can either be three-sided or four-sided. However, there's nobody on Earth that's making pyramidal magnets other than two entities. One's a Russian entity, which, of course, I'm not going to order those. And the other ones were actually uh, ordered specifically under the specific parameters of George Mizell from China. Basically, 99 or basically 100% of the world's neodymium-iron boron magnets that are used in everything comes out of China, and he specifically ordered the specific geometries, but uh, the little Gaussian flux by using a Gauss meter is extremely high, just as water you know, flows with high pressure out of a fireman's nozzle. The actual magnetic flux out of these pyramid magnets acts as a constrictor due to the physical shapes of the magnets. You actually have extremely high, and uh, actually scientists and uh, experimentation labs have, have ordered at great expense uh, large haulback arrays using a series of uh, pyramidal magnets that where the points are pointed inwards, and you actually see this on George Mizell's videos, the Super Magnet Man on YouTube. Um, they're inside of a steel casing, and there's uh, six uh, pyramidal magnets that make up a haulback array, and this is a permanent magnet. You know, there's no power required. Wait a minute. And wait, 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 wait. Let's not skip over that. Make uh -huh. up a haulback array? It refers to a specific type of magnetic array where you actually uh, are, are focusing the force. So you have extremely high magnetic flux on each one of these pyramid magnets, but you set them in an array where they're all pointing inwards with a specific gap at the very dead center, kind of like a wheel, and at the center of which there is an extremely high magnetic field, the type of field that you would only get if you got a significant generator hooked up to an electromagnet, except this is permanent, and as long as you don't heat it or you know wreck it with a sledgehammer, it's going to have that extremely high magnetic field in perpetuity. And this is not, you know, hearsay or conjecture. I mean, it's demonstrable fact with a, a Gauss meter. Well, I when you say high magnetic field, give us some numbers. How high? Uh, his uh, best one that he made, and super expensive. I wish I could test it. Is uh, over three Tesla. Um, the uh, the uh, the pyramids that I actually have in my uh, kitchen. Uh, those are uh, they're made out of two pieces. If you like, took like a pyramid, for example, like the Egyptian pyramid, and like chopped it off about halfway down. You can only make them. You could actually only magnetize neodymium iron boron to a certain depth. And so, if you have a super thick magnet like my pyramidal magnets, what you do is you make them in uh, pieces. 
These specifically are two-piece, so the top of the pyramid you slide on with a wood block. You know, you don't can't do it by hand because it'll literally break your fingers. They're so powerful. Mm. You have this pyramid with a two-inch by two-inch by two-inch base uh, that is about three inches tall, and the very tip of which is about one-eighth of an inch uh, all around and square. And at the very tip of that is uh, – you can actually hold it very close to your skin, and of course we actually have uh, – obviously iron in our blood you can hold it around the veins of your wrist or around your lips or your nose you can actually feel a, a tingling like an a very light electrostatic tingling and um, so you actually can feel the interaction with your human body i mean this is where you literally can feel a magnetic field um, but with a, a gauss meter uh, those are right over one tesla which is extremely strong for a powerful i mean for a, a permanent magnet excuse me not very cheap. They average the two pieces together average about a hundred and forty or a hundred and fifty dollars, I believe. But, uh, so, did you start out with this magnetic, uh, you know, analyses from the theoretical side, or did you start out with, with playing with hardware, doing experiments, mechanics? Uh, both. I mean, I I understood uh, very early on, ages ago, that uh, fundamentally what we understand about magnetism is complete hogwash. Of course, uh, due to lodestones, the Chinese had lodestones thousands of years ago. I think the earliest mention of a magnet is in some ancient Chinese text, is that we've had for these countless thousands of years this notion of magnetic attraction, but magnetism specifically is centrifugal force divergence. As Faraday himself said, the godfather of electricity and Tesla and all the rest of them said that magnetism is the dielectric field. And to think of this in a very simplex analogy, we could think of magnetism as steam, and the dielectric is water, but obviously steam and water are exactly the same thing. They're just different temperature and pressure modalities of one and the same thing. That there's no such thing as magnetic attraction. And uh, doing countless experimentation, like on extremely large and very dangerous magnets, the central part of a magnet uh, has a significantly different interactions as opposed to that of, uh, you know, the centrifugal or the outer edge, which is, which is where. Uh, uh, true magnetism exists. We actually have this conjugate geometry of the universe, uh, the hyperboloid and the torus. Torus, of course, being a donut shape and the hyperboloid being an hourglass shape. And these two conjugate geometries uh, form the foundation or wheelworks of the entire universe. And we see this mimicked in cosmic phenomena looking at galactic jets and geomagnetic precession where we actually have these toroidal and hyperboloidal geometries. I actually have that pulled up as image number eight or number 12 that I actually sent you. This is the cross-section of the conjugate geometries of the entire universe from macro to uh, micro, uh, from subatomic um, all the way to galactic. And uh, these are – this is the yin and the yang or the uh, – you know, the uh, – trying to think of another binary. There are countless binaries throughout metaphysics and all forms of uh, uh, myths that we have throughout the dawn of time of uh, what defines these two uh, field uh, these two field geometries that are the most basic principles of the universe so there's no such thing as magnetic attraction this is a dielectric acceleration i mean attraction of course is not a force magnetism is a force and like i said uh, faraday said that uh, magnetism is the dielectric field and is absolutely correct and then i of course get people to try to think in simplex terms well, what is a magnet? Well, it's this thing I have. You know, I bought it off of eBay. I was like, well, before it became a magnet, it was quantitatively 100% the exact same object. Mm -hmm. And, of course, most people don't know how a magnet is made. Of course, we know that a magnet is made. Um, most people don't know that, uh, like, neodymiums, for example, are ceramic. They're neodymium iron boron. They're actually cast, and then they're heated, and they're either nickel-plated, and that's, of course, very unimportant. But before it becomes a magnet, it is quantitatively identical before or after. Then I ask people, well, what is a magnet? And since it is not quantitative, obviously, therefore, it is qualitative. Then what is it that you're actually calling a magnet? And uh, I try to get people to I've come up with these countless different analogies to, you know, draw them down the path to uh, it, it's extremely simplex, and I can visualize it in my mind. But I actually have to come up with these countless different analogies. Also, to like uh, convergence and divergence on weather phenomena, like image number 15. I have. Okay, hold it there. We're at the uh, top of the hour. My guest this morning is Ken Wheeler, and we're talking about fields, invisible function, invisible force that has a measurable effect on stuff, on matter in motion. In some cases, matter not in motion. 
where matter imparts motion. Anyway, all of a piece. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.